All right, we're going to continue worshiping through his word. It's a beautiful thing that we can gather and speak and pray and sing praises and confess sins. And God also makes a promise to us. He says, I'll come and meet with you and I will give you words. I will give you my word, my law that we can delight upon and cherish in our hearts that we might not sin against him. And so uh, just to give you a, a a, a backdrop to where we've been in Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter six. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning, try to speed the pace up some, but in case you weren't with us the past two weeks, if you, you remember, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. He's the second to come after, or the third, after Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And he shows up and he's dedicated to building this wall to protect the city. Um, and in Nehemiah chapter five, there was this sort of this, digression where he moves away from the work on the wall and he starts to talk about what was happening inside of the covenant community and there was a famine that had hit the land and there was a drought and the people did not have enough money that the poor started to sell their children to the wealthy and that they started to sell their fields and their homes just to make ends meet and the great tragedy in that is that they was actually selling those things to fellow Jews and so when Nehemiah gets wind of it he says, how can this be? How can you who were rich profit off of those who were poor? How can you be thinking about making money and profiting at a time like this? And so the way that God fixed that was not to send more grain, it was not to send more wine, it was to actually open the hearts of the wealthy that they would be generous and they could pay taxes to Artaxerxes and the poor could eat and they got their fields back and their children back. There was a digression. And Nehemiah then, last week, he talked about wanting to be remembered. That there's this refrain over and over again in this book where, remember me, O God, remember me, O God. And God says, Nehemiah, I do remember you. You fear me. And I see the fruit of your fear and your generosity and in your integrity. And so I made the case last week that if we want to live lives that God remembers, that that begins with fear, fearing the Lord. And it shows itself in fruit, a changed life. That is a life that God remembers. And so today we're going back to the wall. And so Nehemiah chapter six. And now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirun in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do harm to me. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king, who is Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. And then I sent him saying, no such thing as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. 
But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by the night. But I said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in there. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and then act in this way and then sin and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us, they were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoanan was, had, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent more letters to make me afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, would you commune with your people? Speak through your servant. We ask that you would bind the evil one. Jesus gave a beautiful parable about the word of God being sown. And the enemy goes out and he snatches away the seed that was sown. And the problem was not with the seed. The problem was with the enemy and our inattentiveness of heart. And so I do pray that as we read and listen that you, your spirit would bind the evil one and that we would focus and that we would love you more as a result of your word. I pray this for Christ's sake, amen. amen. All right, so um, there's something called the uh, exposure effect. You might not know what it is, but I'll, I'll show you where it's at work and then circle back to it. So let's say you go to Ikea and you get some furniture. And the thing about Ikea is you can get it pretty cheap, but you have to put it together, right? And so you go and you make these trips to Memphis or to, I guess, where, I don't know where the nearest Ikea is, but I see it on Facebook. Some of you, hey, I'm going to Ikea. Anybody need me to pick something up, right? Well, if you've ever bought something from Ikea, then you know that you have to do the work. You have to put it together. And if you're like me, the first time you encounter something like a desk or a table and, it's, and you see all the parts, you see all the screws, you see the diagrams, when you look at it, that, that first look, it's like, oh man, what did I get into, right? But then when you come back to it and look at it again, and then again, and then again, it finally sinks in that, hey, you can do this, right? You can do this. It's the same thing with learning a new piece of music, that if you get this new piece of music at first glance, it is intimidating. But if you put it down and come back to it and come back to it and come back to it, it's, you start to get clarity. It's the same with working through hard passages of the Bible. Like they're intimidating at first, but 
when you see it enough and enough and enough that there is something that happens right here where it's not as intimidating. It works in, in almost learning a new language, a new hobby, a new skill, becoming a new parent. The more you do it, the better you get at it. It's called the exposure effect. You see it over and over and over again, and then it finally sinks in that you can do this. I say that because if you've been tracking with Nehemiah, this is the third time where we're talking about Sanballat and Geshem. I mean, they are like fleas and roaches in this book, right? We had fleas once. Our, our neighbor had fleas and our dog was in the backyard and he got them and they came in our house and our ankles started to get bit, bitten and we just didn't know what it was. And finally, man, we, I'm like, man, I, I think I saw something black jumping on me, right? So we put out the white sheets and it was right, we had fleas. And it took forever, I mean forever. We bombed the house, threw away all the, the, the rugs, put the dog outside, I mean we just, that's how these enemies in Nehemiah's book, I mean they're like fleas, they just do not go away. Now here's the thing, if you notice the, the structural integrity of the book, in chapter two you saw opposition, chapter four you saw opposition, we're in chapter six it's opposition again. In other words, what Nehemiah is doing is this, it's this even, I mean, I don't, they, they didn't have chapters, but in the way that we broke the Bible up, that there's something there, two, four, six, and we're in chapter six, they show up again. Now here's the thing, they're showing up to persecute him again. They're showing up to oppose him again. Now how would, what would God want us to think about as we read this for the third time. I'm telling you, when I looked at him, I'm like, man, come on, Lord, you're tripping. Like, do we have to talk about this same thing a third time? And the answer is yes. Why? Exposure effect. You see, at one time, you might think that God's called you to be peaceful and comfortable and happy and that following him will be a breeze. You see, it a second time, you might think, okay, there's some type of pattern here. You see it the third time? This is real deal. Following Jesus might cost me something. Following Jesus might introduce persecution. And so when we think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, if you're to go to Mark Dever's website, he has a website called Nine Marks. He lays out nine marks of a healthy church, and I will not unpack that. The case that I want to make to you is that if we were to start a nine marks of what it means to be a Christian, it's not just going to be that you get the gospel. And it's not just going to be that you've been justified by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. It's not just that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you and you are counted righteous. It's not just that your sins have been atoned for and taken away. It's not just that he who began a good work in you will finish it and so you're safe. What Jesus would add to the mark of a healthy Christian, and you will be persecuted that who you are becoming and what I have done for you, it will bring hostility. It will find you and sort you and sift you. And so that's sort of what I wanna look at this morning. I wanna make a case that there's a certainty of suffering and there's gonna be a certainty of God's presence with you in suffering. 
And I'm not just not, I'm not talking about suffering for suffering's sake. I'm not talking about getting ill or the, the normal stuff that happens. I'm zoning in particularly on the persecution that comes because you are following the Christ. It's certain. And you see it in Nehemiah's in this chapter, the certainty of suffering. You see it as soon as we start talking about the wall. Guess who shows up? The fleas. They come right back. Wall, Sanballat. Wall, Geshem. Wall, Tobiah. It's the every time the wall is mentioned in this book, you go up a few verses or go down a few verses and you're going to find these guys who were opposing the wall. And so their strategy was, I think it was threefold. The first way they were opposing him or attacking him or persecuting him was with their words. And so they came to Nehemiah four times, four times. Nehemiah, come out here to this plain which butts up against Ashdod and Samaria. Come out here outside of Judah's territory and meet us right here. Four times in a row they come. Nehemiah says, nope, nope. Nope, not coming. Why would I come out there and stop this work that I'm doing here? And it didn't stop at the fourth time. There was a fifth time, but except this time, it wasn't just with words. Now they've written a letter. They have this letter, this letter with this seal that they're about to send to King Artaxerxes. And in the letter, it is falsely accusing Nehemiah of rebelling against Artaxerxes. Okay, Nehemiah, we're going to send a letter and we have plenty of witnesses. And here is our letter. You are trying to make yourself a king. That's why you're building a wall. That's why you're giving your people weapons, because you have hired prophets all throughout your, your city to proclaim that there is a new king in Judah. This isn't, this isn't new, right? This is what they did to Jesus. This is one of the ways that Jesus was handed over. This is why the government officials hated him because they were threatened. Here comes a new king. Herod, let's kill all the boys, right? This isn't new that when a new king is here and, a new, and an old king is here and I hear that there's a king over here, I want to stomp him out. And so what they're doing is they're trying to write this letter and get it sent to Artaxerxes so that Artaxerxes in turn comes back and crushes Nehemiah. He says, no. That's not going to work either. I'm not coming out there. I'm not going to attend to this letter. It's all lies. You're making it up. And then they go further, right? They go to this guy named Shemaiah, who we think is a priest, who it says that he is bound to his home. And what we think is happening there is he is ceremonially unclean. And therefore, he says, I can't go to the temple yet. So you come here to me. But then we can go back to the temple. Let's go into the temple. Now, here's the thing. He's been hired by Tobiah. He's been hired by Sanballat. And his name means Yahweh listens. Remember that Ayah I told you, Nehemiah? Here you have Shemaiah. His, the, the last part of his name means Yahweh. So Yahweh hears or, or listen to Yahweh. And now you have a false prophet, a false priest who's telling Nehemiah, let's run into the temple and hide. He says, nope, that's not going to work either. And then there's another prophetess whose name is Noadiah, and her name, I mean, it's Yahweh speaks. And so she's out here falsely speaking, trying to get Nehemiah to go into the temple, and they're doing all of this. I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. It's really complicated, this web of deception. They're trying to get him to stop. Now, the question is, what's at the tap root? Like, what's at the bottom of their efforts? 
He says it over and over again. Look at verse 2. They wanted to harm me. Look at verse 9. They wanted to frighten us. Look at verse 13. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid, and then out of my fear I should act, and out of my acting I shall sin. Look at verse 14. The prophets wanted to make me afraid. Look at verse 19. Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. That that's what they're doing. They, they, they are trying to cause fear to come over this man of God who just wants to do a good work for God. Now, here's the question that we have to wrestle with. And I think it, it is important. It is crucial to understand in this book. The decision that we have to make at this point in Nehemiah's letter is God describing Nehemiah's persecution as something that was only set apart for him as a leader or is he prescribing this saying if you will follow me you too will be persecuted and that's a really important issue right because I've told you in the in the in the series that there are some things that God is describing that are unique to Nehemiah here are a few you would not say, hey, Christian, let's go and rebuild the temple and let's offer sacrifices again. You would not say that. Why? Because the real sacrifice has come. And so if we apply this book about going back to rebuild the temple in that way, we're missing it. That is unique to him. He was building the temple to make a way for the real savior who would come and be the real lamb of God. If we say, let's go back and rebuild Jerusalem in the way that they're doing it, we're missing it because Jesus says, you will go to the end of the earth. I've come into Jerusalem. I've accomplished every single thing that I wanted to do. And now we're going out to the ends of the earth. If we say, hey, let's be like Nehemiah and rebuild a wall and protect our country, right? If we say that and we say we use Nehemiah to justify it, we're missing the point. That is not what this passage is doing. Nehemiah is building the wall to protect the seed of God. Right there in that day, there was a high priest who's in Jesus' lineage in Matthew. God is preparing and protecting this city so that his son could come. Where does Hebrews tell us Jesus was crucified? Outside of the wall. It says, let us go outside of the wall, out to where he was crucified, because we don't long for this city. So here's the case that, that, that if we think, okay, persecution, Pastor L, this needs to fit over here with the wall, with the city, with Jerusalem, with, this is something that, that's unique to Nehemiah. And I'm saying, no, that's where we're wrong. This does not belong in this box. This persecution he feels, this belongs in this box. This is prescriptive. He is prescribing and telling us if anyone would come after me, you will suffer. Now we know this because if you read what Curtis read for our New Testament scripture reading, it came straight from Peter. Listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beloved, li listen to this language. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening. But insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, 
you are being insulted for the name of Christ. But do not suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. You hear what, what Peter is saying? He says, when it comes, when the fiery trials come, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. You already know to follow Jesus will bring persecution. Don't get caught as a murderer or an evildoer and then you get sent to jail and then you say, hey, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're, you're sin and you're being punished. He's talking about suffering for the sake of Jesus. This is what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5. Listen to what he says in Matthew. Blessed are you when the others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see what Jesus is saying? This is hours before Jesus was crucified in John 15. This is what he tells his disciples. The world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, for I have chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. Remember this word that I'm telling you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He says, I tell you this, that you may not fall away. What Jesus is saying is to be a believer. It means that we will be persecuted. And what I want to do is use a case study from John. So you don't have to turn there. Just kind of trust me on this. So this is what Jesus tells his disciples before he's crucified. After he's crucified and raised, he comes back to his disciples. And you know what he tells Peter? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then right after that, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, picking up on the same theme of persecution, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you walked wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you would stretch out your hands and another would dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Well, what is he talking about? John tells us. He said this to show what kind of death Peter would die to glorify God. You hear what Jesus picks up on as soon as he is raised from the dead. Peter, I told you, you guys are going to suffer. And it's not going away. They're going to crucify you upside down. And then Peter, at this point, John says it. Well, what about him? What about John? What about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? He actually asked Jesus, okay, Jesus, I get it. I'm going to be persecuted. But what about him? Listen to what Jesus tells Peter. If it is my will that this man remain until I come, what is this to you? You follow me. You, that's kind of cold, right? <laughs> it's like you worried about John. You need to be worried about yourself. Well, but didn't Jesus tell them all of them would be persecuted? And do you know how all the disciples died? Martyrs. Crucified, beheaded, thrown from buildings. Not one of them escaped persecution. And here's the thing. Case study again, right? You know what happened to John? He lived the longest. He lived long enough to write the book of Revelation. And you know where he wrote it from? The island of Patmos. A prison. 
a place where you sent prisoners to work and to die, a rocky land, right? Like that's where he wrote Revelation from. It was not in a five-story house. It was not in this beautifully manicured, I'm not, I'm not against anything, like I promise you I'm not. Like, but the image there is when Jesus tells them all, you will all suffer. And some of them crucified upside down. And John, you're not immune from it either. You're going to be crucified. I mean, not crucified. You're going to be banished to this island over here. And so here's what, the, this is the one sentence I want you to remember right here. In Jesus, we will all be persecuted. Comma. But the severity of it and intensity of it it's up to him as well. You see, Peter's lot crucified upside down. John's lot exiled to the island of Patmos. But both of them suffered. When John writes the book of Revelation, listen to how he starts it off. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the patient endurance was on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You hear what John is doing. Even though his lot was different, he is identifying himself with all of those who have been and are being persecuted for the name of Christ. And this is good news, right? Let me tell you why it's good news, because, man, I, I read what's happening in our world with Christians across the world, beheadings, bombings. And a part of me, I don't know what to do with that, right? Because I can sit in the comfort of my home and watch the NBA finals. I can come in here week in and week out and preach and I'm not really afraid that somebody's gonna come in here and blow me up. And so when I hear about the suffering for Christians that they're enduring across the world, it kind of goes in here and I'm like, man, am I like a real Christian? I don't know what to do with it, right? And I think if Jesus were speaking to us right here, right now, he would say that I have established your lot. I have established your habitation. That there is a reason you're a black man living in Mississippi. There's a reason you're a white woman living in Mississippi. I have put you here, and so this is your lot, right? Now, they are over there, and it's intense, but here's the thing. Across ages, across geography, it might be more intense over there than it is right here, but as a Christian living right here, I don't have to be guilty that that's not my reality, right? There's some freedom there. What is it to you? You suffer, you, you, you know, right? Now, on the one hand, that's freeing, but you got to look at the other side of it. John was on an island on Patmos living as an exile. And so even though his punishment was lighter, his persecution was softer, he was still living a life of exile. And I think that's the part that we American Christians need to hear, that we're not being crucified upside down. We're not being bombed at the moment but that does not make us 
immune from living an exiled, persecuted life right here and right now. That when we can see these things on the news and on the radio and think nothing of it, something's wrong. That if we will follow Jesus right here in Mississippi, Jesus is right there in Mississippi, persecution awaits you. I'll tell you examples because I know some of you might, well, Pastor Hill, how have you been persecuted? I'll give you one example. We had a student who uh, ended up getting pregnant several years ago. This was several years ago. And uh, she was not married. And she told us before she told her own parents. And so she met with me and my wife in our living room. And she says, she had just become a Christian. And she said, I want to keep my baby. And that's what she wanted. And she, she had two years left for school. She did not know how to make it work because you can't be pregnant and live on campus. And she said, I want my baby. I know what I did was wrong, but I want to keep my child. And so we got involved and we just got some people around her. And long story short, there was a family in this church, a white family, who brought her into their house. And she stayed there a year and a half, had the baby. We got childcare around her. And do you know we face persecution? The sheer fact that my wife and I cared enough about her and the child to say, you can keep it, there are options. That I was accused with my wife next to me of caring so much about this child because I must have fathered the child. And you talking about like being angry? And my wife is angry that this was even said by this girl's mother in the context of us trying to be Christians. We're not trying to be super Christians. We're just trying to pastor. And in that moment, our good deeds were misconstrued for evil. You know what it's like to love somebody through that and forgive somebody through that when we're trying to do the right thing. That my wife works at Walgreens. There is certain medication right now that she will not give you. If you go to her store when she's at work and you want certain medicine that she thinks is sinful to take, she will not give it to you. And people know in West Jackson, you're not going to get that when Miss Karen is there. You got to come back at another time. <laughs> Persecution, right? That some of you, you have chosen to marry cross-culturally and cross-racially, right? And this is a gospel thing that black and white and yellow and blue, we are not forbidden from being together. And so you're compelled by the gospel to move in and press into and love someone who does not look like you and who does not look like your family. And then your family and your friends, they persecute you. That to be at this church where we're pursuing this multi-ethnic vision and dream, not because it's cool and not because it's a fashion statement, but because we believe that the church that you see in the book of Revelation, it looks like this. And so we're compelled that we will be, we will, un, I mean, we will bear with one another. We will all be uncomfortable. We will sing hymns that black people don't know. We will sing music that white people don't know. We will do all this kind of stuff because we think it's worth it. But from the outside world, why are you doing that? It's gospel, right? 
that when you choose to adopt cross racially, when you choose to fight for your daughter's life, when everyone around you might say, give up, you say, no, this is my daughter made in the image of God. We will fight and fight and fight and fight and work. And everyone is around you. Just, just stop it. Just stop it. No, we will not stop it. That's how it works, Christian. When we march to a different beat of the world, the world doesn't like it. They can't stand it. And that's what Nehemiah is catching so much flack for. Why do you care about Jerusalem? Why do you care about the wall? Why do you care that they're generous? Because my God cares about this city. And the reason they keep coming at him over and over and over again is because he is not playing ball on their terms. And if you're a Christian, you will have to run your business differently. And the world will not like it. If you're a Christian, you will have to spend your time differently. When the boys want to hang out super late, and you've already worked a long day, there is something God-honoring about saying, I'm going home, and I'm going to be a dad, and I'm going to be a father. And you might get skipped in promotions. Then you might have to find a new job. But when I say that the gospel calls us to march to a different beat, the world does not like that beat. That's why Nehemiah is being persecuted. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we following Jesus enough that it hurts? That our lives start to look different from the American dream. That it starts to look different from the Northeast Jackson dream. That it starts to look different from this Republican ideal. If we start to fit neatly in these categories, if I'm over here and I have no issue with anything that non-Christians are a part of, and I can be in this political party and agree with them 100% of the time, something's wrong. And it goes both ways. We don't fit in. This is a third culture that Jesus is calling us to, and it's one that will be persecuted by the world. But there's a promise in here, right? God draws near to his people who are being persecuted. They have their web of deception going on with Geshem and Sanballat and Nehemiah, I mean, Tobiah and I mean, just Shemaiah and Noadiah. I mean, they got this web going on where they're all just opposing him. And you know what God is doing? I'm at work. I'm working. They're working around you. I'm working in you. And that's the hope. Look at what Nehemiah says in verse 9. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Think about that statement. For him to cry out to his God for strength. It actually means that it's working, that what they're doing is harmful, that, that, that he's getting weak and he's tired. And he says, God, I don't have it in me to stand. And God draws near and gives strength. I was on the phone last night with Otis driving back from Birmingham. My wife's little brother got married yesterday. So I had to go over there and officiate a wedding and drove back. I called my dad and I called Otis and we just had some time on the phone and 
man, he just talked about the strength of the Lord that has been availed to them in their weakness. He says, I know it's not me, Pastor. I know that in my own strength, I could not, we could not endure what we've been enduring. But God's strength has come to the rescue. That that is their testimony and that is our testimony in the face of suffering. God has strength that he delights to give you in our weakness. Even when we would want to cower back in fear, he says, no, I'm going to give you strength. That's his promise to you in Jesus. He will strengthen you. The second thing you see is that God gives discernment. Like, like Nehemiah, he... I mean, they come to him four times, and the fifth time, he says, look, I know what your mouths are saying. You're saying, hey, let's meet. Hey, let's meet. He says, I see what you intend to do. That is a God-like quality. Do you know how often we are deceived by people? How often we are deceived by our own sin? It promises to satisfy us, and we go after the bait over and over and over again, and then discernment sets in right here when Nehemiah says, I know what you're saying, but I see in your heart. God is giving that to him. That God gives a focus that drowns out all the noise around him. That I don't know if you thought about it, but man, to get a letter. I mean, think about getting a letter written by your enemy that's going to your boss. I mean, think about it, like, like Nehemiah has been appointed governor by Artaxerxes, and now you have your, I guess you would call these people, people who were dotted line, they were on the same level with you in your business or in your company, and all of a sudden they start this smear campaign to tell the boss what you're doing. Can you think about what it would take out of you? Everything in me would want to clear my name. I would want to get to Susa before the letter got there and say, no, this isn't right, this isn't right that I would want to prove myself and vindicate myself. And in the middle of this letter, this letter that's about to go, he says, I'm not coming off the wall. I'm going to say right here, think about that. I mean, think about the image that you have all of this noise going on around you. And in the midst of all the noise, all the lies, you stay focused. It's that beautiful passage from Psalm 23. The Lord makes a table for me where? in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> Think about that image. Your enemies are attacking you and are on you. And the Lord says, okay, let me fold out a table and let me set you a meal and I want you to eat, my daughter. Right here in the midst of the chaos, sit at my table and eat. I can't even have an argument with my wife and get back to work. That if there's some tension there in our relationship over something, it's so hard for me to get back to work and do this in front of me because I want to resolve this tension. And here it is, Nehemiah's being falsely accused. And he says, you know what? I'm going to stay on the wall. I'm not going to even handle it. Where does that kind of focus come from? It's confidence in the Lord. God gives wisdom. He gives discernment earlier, but he gives wisdom here. I mean, can you think about what it would have been like to have a prophet who named, who, her name means Yahweh speaks, to have a priest who means listen to Yahweh, and they're both trying to get you to go into the temple? 
that I'm stumbling right there, right? I, I, I might listen to them. He says, no, what man am I that I should go into the house of the Lord and live? I'm a governor, but I'm not a priest. If I go in there, I die. And we have evidence in scripture when, when the Ark of the Covenant was falling and Uzzah reached out and tried to grab it before it fell to the ground. This, this moment, I mean, this, this momentary lapse in judgment and he is consumed by the holiness of God and it, and it happens, it can happen where in this moment it might be tempting. Let me just run into the temple. Nehemiah says, no, I don't want any parts of that right there because I know I'm running from them but do you know what happens to me if I run in there? I got to answer to him. I'm not a priest. I don't deserve. I can't come in here and live. And so in the midst of all this pressure and persecution, he still has his bearings to fear and honor the Lord. That is the Lord saving Nehemiah from the Lord. It's God. God prospers them. They finished this wall in 52 days. They're trying to stop him and stop him and stop him. And the Lord says, nope, we're going to keep it moving. We're going to finish it. You're going to finish it. You're going to finish it. You're going to finish it. And they do. And they turn the tables. Look at it when it says that. Look at verse 16. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their fear. You see the turning of the table? That they're trying to make him afraid, and God says, no, when I finish this wall, you're going to be afraid. We're going to turn the tables. You who are persecuting my people, you're going to answer to me. Isn't that good news, Christian? That in Jesus, God has vowed himself to you. That in the middle of your persecution from the world, I will not abandon you. I've done that once with my son. I left him there to atone for your sins. But through Jesus, I am pledging myself to you. I will never leave you and never forsake you. I don't care what it costs you, even if it's your life. And so when I think about persecution, I tend to think about what I lose. I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose comfort. I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm going to lose all these things. And here's what Nehemiah says. You can gain more of God through being persecuted by the world that hates him. You see the image there? They're trying to strip him away, strip him, strip him, strip him. And God says, no. Nope. I'm giving you more of me. I'm giving you my strength. I'm giving you my wisdom. I'm giving you my focus. I'm giving you my discernment. I'm giving you all of this. That's the beautiful nature about what's happening here. We will persevere through persecution because God himself has pledged to draw near to us in it. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid to do life differently from the world. We don't have to be afraid to say no. We don't have to be afraid to stand up for truth. We don't have to be afraid of what the world might do. So I wanna close with this letter, uh, a part of a letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German 
spy, pastor, scholar that he wrote. He died in a concentration camp because of a failed plot to kill Adolf Hitler. He was found out to be involved in it. And um, he was very vocal about his faith. He spent time in New York at a black church and then went back to Germany to teach. And he left again as war was breaking out. And his goal was to go back to Germany after the war. And once he had gotten everything arranged to leave Germany and to go back to the States the second time, as soon as he got there, he felt called to go back. And so he went back. And the war broke out and, and word got out that he was against Hitler and he was uh, imprisoned into a prison camp. And here's one of the, 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 the latter letters that he wrote to his fiance, Maria. He says, persecution is a holy angel who shows treasures to men which would otherwise remain hidden. Through him, men have become greater than through all the joys that this world can offer. It must be so, and I tell this to myself in my present position over and over again, this pain of longing which often can be felt even physically, it must be there, and we need not talk it away, but it has been overcome every time by an even holier angel than the one of pain. It is the one of joy in God. Your prayers and kind thoughts and passages from the Bible, long forgotten conversations, pieces of musics and books, these are all invested with life and reality as never before. I live in a great unseen realm of those whose real existence in, uh, I live in a great unseen realm of whose real existence I'm in with no doubt. Therefore, do not think me unhappy. This place is well heated. Mobility is all I lack. So I do exercises and pace up and down my cell with the window open. And on top of this, I'm glad I'm allowed to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and he dies like four months later, he's hung. Think about the image right there, right? He's in a prison camp, about to die. And he says, I've lost all things, but I've gained more of Christ. Christ. 